Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. We have a fantastic guest for you today. This person has won the BMA bursary. They're a YouTuber. They're in a Royal Navy University Naval Unit. Trainee commercial helicopter pilot with Heli Center. Microlife pilot and ran a Lancaster flight sim as a Tiger Moth ground crew. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Tom McNicholas, the micro pilot on YouTube. Tom, how are we? I'm absolutely brilliant. Thanks for having me on. No problems at all. It's not every day we get someone with, with that kind of CV on to come to come and have a chat with us. Um, so it's great to have you. No, thanks. Thanks. It's not extremely extensive. After all, I'm only 23. But yeah, I've always tried to be as involved as I can with aviation since a very young age. So hopefully it's interesting enough for your listeners. I'm sure it will be. I think anyone who listens to this already has an interest in aviation or is, is gaming one. So anything with aviation, they seem to lap up. Um, so Tom, I'm going to start off with, with the usual question that I ask everybody is, and where did your interest in aviation begin or come from? Well, I, th I think it's sort of um, two stages, really. The first one is I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> as, as I think some people, uh, you know, they, they just find that they're into it and they, they have no idea why. But also... I think something that really reinforced my interest was, um, if, if anyone knows um, up north near Manchester area, um, there's the airfield, uh, Barton Airfield, or, you know, known as uh, City Airport and Heli Heliport. And um, I used to go there just quite a lot um, with family. You know, we'd uh, watch all the airplanes and helicopters taking off and things like that. And uh, then when I eventually got my own car at 16, things like, no, sorry, 17, um, can't drive at 60. <laughs> um, no, so when I got my own car, I was visiting quite a lot myself as well. And um, yeah, the, one of the best things, I don't know if anyone visited uh, a few years ago, but the air ambulance used to be based right in front of the control tower. Um, so there's like, there's like a perch um, on the first floor where all visitors can go and watch the aircraft. Um, so Barton's actually really, really visitor-friendly airfield. Um, so we, you know, used to stand on the tower quite a lot and the helipad was unbelievably close to the tower. Um, and then you could see that the little cabins on the side, you're quite literally just porter cabins. Um, and then, you, you know, you'd stand there for like an hour or two and you, you'd hear the, the little klaxon or, or the phone ringing going off. And then you see them all sprinting out to the aircraft and it was just really exciting to watch that. And then I think from there onwards, I am... Um, I just, you know, I wanted a bit of that excitement myself, you know, as a career. So um, I don't know. I was always interested in the emergency services, but then I don't know why. I always just, I just got drawn to the sort of pilot side of things. Um, so it was mainly the air ambulances that got me heavily into um, aviation. And then from there onwards, you know, when you start to look into it all, you know, uh, your interest just starts to um, go into other things as well. You, you started flying on your, um, you could say, kind of building on your interest. You started flying on, on fixed wing with, with microlights. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, as you said already, I got the uh, BMAA bursary, which was amazing. Um, so the, you know, especially back being a, sort of a, you know, being in your mid-teens sort of thing, you know, it's, it's, you know, as anyone knows, you know, if you're trying to get into aviation, it's not, cheap or easy so um you know the, the the closest thing and the cheapest thing at the time was to get into flying microlights um a brilliant flying school up at um, barton main air um i started my first few lessons with 
And at this point, I was in the process of um, applying to university and things like that. So um, I did my first uh, few lessons on a EV97 Eurostar up at uh, Main Air in Barton and then uh, went off to uni in Brighton. But in between the uh, transition of going to university, um, I was incredibly lucky enough to apply to the BMAA bursary um, and, ju and just basically prove, you know, my massive interest in aviation and, you know, just the passion that I have to do it. And, um, you know, they, they see the, the sort of potential in young people, which is absolutely amazing because um, it makes it way more accessible than it would be otherwise. So we went and did sort of a selection day at Cywell. Um, and then lucky enough, uh, all of us who went on the selection day actually ended up getting awarded bursaries. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And so I ended up being given, quite literally just gifted £2,000 from the BMAA wow. to es essentially kickstart my training into uh, getting my NPPL microlight license. Just for any listeners that aren't aware who the BMA are, they're the British Microlight Aircraft Association. Um, and what's great about actually having you on at the moment, Tom, talking about the BMA bursary is, is that the BMA bursary is open at the moment, um, which is fantastic. If you've got an interest in microlight aircraft uh, and you want to go and train and, and become, you should definitely get over to their website now and, and, and apply for it. But Tom, what was your selection process like? What, what, was, what was it like when you decided, oh, I actually want to go and finish my license. I want to get a bursary. What, what was the selection process like for the bursary? Yeah, so uh, quite naturally, I think, you know, when they're looking to pay for people's training, they, um, they, you know, they want to make sure they're giving it to the right people. So um, the there's, I wouldn't necessarily call it extensive, but, you know, there's the online uh, application process that you have to go through. And I actually looked at it recently and it was very similar to what it was when I applied. And um, they're essentially just asking why, you know, why, why do you want to do it? And, um, you know, you, you just essentially prove, you know, that, that you're, you know, you're really into it. You're keen to learn, you know, that, you know, aviation's your passion. And then, out of the people who apply, they um, they invite so many of you down. I can't remember how many was on mine. It was between 10 and 12 of us, I think, um, out of however many applied. I, I wasn't sure how many applied. Um, and we all got invited down to Cywell for a, a day, essentially. Um, and this was actually quite a while ago now. So I was, uh, I think, I don't know how old I was. I was about, I was just, I was between 17 and 18. I think um, some there were older, some were a little bit um, younger as well. Um, so, yeah, we went down and I just remember that there was an individual interview. Um, so there's about four, three or four people from the BMAA who interviewed you. And, um, you know, again, essentially just going over why, you know, you want the bursary and things like that. And then we all had to give a presentation on a aviation type uh, topic. So I picked um, altimetry because for me, it was an excuse to learn something new and, um, you know, and then present it to the group of um, the, you know, the people who were on the selection day and representatives from the BMAA. We uh, had lunch and then they took all of us flying for between, can't remember now, I think it was about half an hour to an hour. So we all went up and essentially proved um, to them that 
we're not scared of flying <laughs> essentially <laughs> and uh, you know they, they just slightly assess your ability to learn listen you know whilst you're in the air and things like that and uh, we came back down um they didn't tell us on the day actually you know we all got a group picture um they didn't tell us understandably because if anyone wasn't selected then you know it'd be unfair on them you know with everybody else around you who has passed sort of thing so we all went home and then literally a couple of days later um we got an email saying whether we were successful or not and how much was going towards um our bursary brilliant yeah so it was absolutely amazing and like I say, at that point, I was in, I was transitioning to moving down to uh, university in Brighton. So um, I got in touch with the nearest microlight school, which was Deanland Aviation. Uh, sorry, correction, Flight Sport Aviation uh, at Deanland Airfield. And um, they, they were absolutely amazing about it. Um, it's such a shame that he's not here anymore. But um, Richard, if you knew Richard, uh, Richard Foster. Yes, yes. Richard, yes, yes. Yes, so... No, so he was incredible. So I was speaking to Richard and Shelley from uh, uh, Flight Sport. Um, you know, I was speaking to them. They were really impressed that the BMAA had given me a bursary and they were, you know, they were receiving me with open arms at the airfield, you know, sort of saying, you know, come along, we'll get you training, basically. Brilliant. And so, I know for myself yeah. with Flight Sport Aviation and everything, uh, there's a, it's a great microlight club. Uh, it's a great flying club. Um, and I spend, do spend a lot of time myself there. We're, we're not even being forced to say this, by the way. They actually are. Really, yeah, just to put really it out, there's no school. paid promotions in this. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, there isn't, but yeah. <laughs> so, how did you find then switching? Because the, the main training aircraft for microlights in Flight Sport Aviation is the Icarus C 42. How did you find after doing a couple of hours in the Eurostar switching to the C 42? Well, I, I only actually had four hours on the Eurostar. And I think, like most people who start on microlights, they go for the Eurostar because it's the most normal, plain looking microlight there is, <laughs> essentially. Um, with the C 42 looking a little bit more like a scaled down Cessna, essentially. Um, but no, um, I moved to Flight Sport. Um, all they had at the time was C 42. So naturally, that was the only thing I could train on. But I think like anyone who's flown the C-42, essentially just, you know, you, you don't learn to love it. You, you essentially love it when you, you know, when you get flying it. It's, um, it's a bit peculiar. I think what throws people off is, is the sort of the weird layout of the cockpit. You know, you've got your throttle lever between your legs. Um, the flaps are up on the ceiling, you know, in between the two seats. Um, and then you've got a central sort of side stick. Um, which is kind of the opposite, you know, because the, the Eurostar has your control in the middle, you, your control column in between your legs and then the throttle in between the two seats. So, um, and it was, it was oddly easy to learn how to fly it that way. You know, it was just intuitive. You know, I don't know, you'd think swapping around your hands and things like that would be a lot more harder, but it actually wasn't. And um uh, like you say yourself you, you'll know but anyone who's flown the c42 will just know how calm stable and sporty it is it's, it's weird to have a calm stable and sporty aircraft but somehow it, it manages to do it so it's the only yeah. aircraft i've really ever flown that uh, i think i think it may, may, most schools use it because it like you said you've nailed it on the head it's calm stable it's docile it's forgiving um but at the same time 
when you're up in the cruise and stuff, you can turn that thing into into an F sixteen. It'll it'll turn on the spot. It, it'll whatever whatever you think about doing in your head, the C forty two will nearly react to. And I think that's what makes it such a good aircraft to learn in is that it's got everything in one package. Yeah, yeah, you'd be forgiven for thinking it's got some advanced computer controls behind the scenes, but no, it really hasn't. But like you say, it, you know, it is quite sporty. But on the other hand, you can sit there, hands off the controls. You can, you know, once you set your, um, once you've set your throttle to keep you in a nice, uh, you know, straight and level uh, cruise, then uh, you can essentially hands off and you can control your head in just by using your feet and your rudders. So. You know, it's it's a brilliant aircraft, and like I say, you know, now I'm helicopter training. It's you do miss it because it's just a much more relaxed form of flying. You know, it's more like about the sport and the the, the fun of it rather than the really serious side of it. You know, yeah, it's more like a let's say community you feel than, than a commercial feel. I would imagine. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm loving commercial training at the moment, but you know that that whole grassroots element of going to the airfield. You know, I mean, I, I remember on the summer days we'd turn up. Shelley would have the barbecue going. We'd we'd all be having burgers and things like that, and then a few of us would just pop off in the plane for an hour and come back. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. That's what I loved. Even during the summer there recently, um, there was a flight sport barbecue on. Pop down, oh, yeah, have a yeah. burger go for a spin, come back, have another burger, maybe go for another spin. It was, it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It was amazing. Yeah. And it, you know, they, that was really good for getting everybody who you wouldn't normally see, you know, cause if you're just a normal hire, you'd, you'd, you'd turn up in the week or at the weekend, you know, do your hours fly and then go home. So, you know, all those social um, events were really good to just meet everybody else who was flying there. And I made some, uh, good friends you know by do by meeting all the people at these uh, social events that flight sport organized so yeah no it's amazing and i'm definitely going back at some point i'd like to see you back and be a bit of crack no oh, definitely we'll have to fly together at some point 100 <laughs> percent, definitely definitely so then yeah. so you, you started training at what point are you looking at getting into the youtube side of things and the video and, and documenting your your travels as to say so the the whole youtube thing sort of came about I think even before I got the BMAA bursary, I think quite naturally as someone who's really keen in into aviation, um, YouTube in the last few years has, you know, has developed into what it is now. It's just incredible. The amount of things on there, you could almost do a degree by just learning off videos from YouTube, you know, but um, no, I don't know if it was just by my lack of finding content or, whether there just wasn't any, but, you know, as a, as a young keen teenager, I was just, I was always trying to find flying videos and, you know, naturally there was a lot of stuff from the U S but not a lot from the UK. So you might've heard of him already, but, um, someone I was really keen to watch was, uh, the flying reporter. Um, so I used to love watching all these videos cause he was mainly based in the UK. So especially when you're getting into flying and learning how to fly, watching someone's videos from the UK, you know, they're speaking to air traffic control and things like that, you know, and you, you just pick up things. Obviously you don't learn it for proper training, but you know, when you can't fly or you've got big gaps between flying, all you do is watch videos on YouTube, you know, about flying. So for me, there was sort of not a lot going on on the UK side of things. So I essentially just wanted to make my own channel and basically fill the gap that I perceived was there, you know? So, um, 
initially, like anybody who starts on YouTube, my videos were absolutely dreadful. Um, and I think out of principle, I, I don't recommend anyone to go watch them, but out of principle, I've, I've, I've left them on my channel. So, so you do you know go... everyone's going to go straight to watch them now. Oh, definitely. But then I urge them to go through the videos and watch how much better they've got since. <laughs> but no, out of principle, I've just left them on there. So um, you can sort of go right back to the early days and uh, watch. And the first ever one was a um, an aerobatics flight. I was lucky enough to go on at Barton uh, with a guy called Steve and he was brilliant. He just took me up for an hour. It was my first ever aerobatics video um, and flight. So no, that was amazing. And uh, feel, feeling that weight of the G-forces on your face. You know, you're absolutely convinced that your face looks like it's melting. So it was a bit um, depressing looking back at the camera where it doesn't actually show how you were feeling when you were under those G-forces. Um, but yeah, the, the only thing you see on camera is just the microphone disappearing down underneath my chin because of the, the G-forces. But no, that was brilliant. So I kind of went for... Early on, I kind of went for more of a sort of a fun, you know, a happy sort of fun, sort of sharing my fun experiences, you know, mainly during training in the early stages. But then the rest of it was um, just me having fun with my mates, going up flying at the weekend sort of thing. And uh, now I'm trying to tailor it more into just sort of information type videos. You know, obviously, I'm not an instructor at the moment anyway, so I can't really teach people anything and especially on youtube but i just like to explain what's going on because essentially i'm i'm providing videos to my younger self who would have loved to seen this content so you know and i'm hoping that you know other people enjoy it too so you know the, and one of the things i sorry and one of the things i urge my viewers to 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 um let me know in the comments and things like that is just let me know what you want to know because I, you know i'm i'm making the videos for you so i'm here coming up with all these video ideas but i essentially want to know what people want to watch basically so let me know <laughs> brilliant because i it, judge going back to saying what, what thing hope people enjoy it obviously by your following you've, you've got quite a big following on it so people seem to be um, quite involved in your videos uh, which which is great to see but when did you start actually getting a following because i know myself and doing it i've had two successful videos and the rest just don't seem to take off very much um so i do take my hat off to you for for keeping that and keeping going uh it's really really hard to put a finger on it actually um because the yeah you, you're quite right you, you make some videos and another one of the most frustrating frustrating things about youtube is that you'll make a video that you think is kind of crap no one's going to watch it or anything and then suddenly it gets thousands and thousands of views and you're really mad because you didn't put as much effort into the production of it as you thought you could have and then you go and put loads of effort into other videos that no one watches you know so it, it's really weird in that sense so yeah the, the first ever one which i presume we'll talk about in a moment is uh, the near miss i had and i think to this day that's still the most viewed um clip on my channel but um in terms of actually getting some sort of following it's really hard to put your finger on because um as anyone will know who gets into youtube the the sort of the progression of subscribers um it it 
it's kind of logarithmic. You know, at, at the start, it's really, really hard to get subscribers. And it, it sort of corresponds with, you know, how good your uh, production is. But that's only something you learn by producing more and more videos, you know. Yeah. Um, but no, I'd, I'd say the first time I noticed it, it was kind of going anywhere was probably over a hundred subscribers. Cause that was kind of like, you know, you know, the mark to hit at the time, because like I say, the videos were rubbish, but you know, for some reason people were subscribing. Um, and what, one other thing that um, I thought was kind of odd was people actually like to watch the flight right from the start to the very end. You know, they, they genuinely will watch a 45 hour minute hour long video um which i thought was a bit odd but people seem to like it so i kind of i still shorten my videos down because you know you kind of got to keep viewers you know attention but i still keep them long enough to you know to satisfy because i've got to satisfy people who don't know anything about flying mm. and people who possibly know a lot so you know you've got to strike that middle ground really yeah i don't know if you follow flight chops um a guy based oh definitely yeah I, again <laughs> again get, getting into youtube he was you know that when you type in aviation flying clearly he got into it early enough to 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 sort of be the channel that everyone gravitates he towards. found the niche didn't he he was he was well definitely in definitely yeah no so you know whenever you typed in aviation or flying on youtube like his channel was pretty much one of the first things that pops up so quite naturally i i watched quite a few of his videos because I know he does, uh, I think he, he does a patron side to the um, <coughs> to the uh, flying videos. So you go onto his YouTube channel, he has all the content there that you can watch and stuff. But he also does a patron side where he will film. He flies a, a T6 Harvard Warbird at the moment. And I know he yeah. will do literally a video of him getting out of the car and just keeping the camera going throughout the whole thing until he's back in the car after the flight. And he offers that to patrons, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, you know, there's, there's, I don't know why, um, but people like it. <laughs> I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it at all, but I, you know, you know, one of the tricks to YouTube is, like I say, keeping your viewers' attention. So it'd be really easy, you know, during the boring parts of a flight for people just to switch off and put a different video on. So, you know, clearly they're the people who, you know, who your channel's all about, really. They're the people who are following you and really liking what you're doing, you know. So definitely, you know, you try and please them as much as you can. 100%. And I think we'll, we'll go back to this most viewed video on, on your channel because um, <laughs> it ties in with the with the training as well. Um, yeah. do, do you want to give us a rundown on, on the video? Oh, it's... Uh, well, without going into too much detail, it was essentially a near miss, Um and I'm definitely not going to badmouth anyone involved because it was just essentially it was legal on both parts, um, on both aircraft. Um, but the we were flying near Beachy Head, um, you know, down near Brighton, and um, we were about uh, just over 3,000 feet, I think. And um, I, um, I actually had my head inside the cockpit at this point because it was actually a training flight my um excuse me my instructor was teaching me sort of the, the effects of stalls and things like that so we, we we were doing quite a few stalls at the time so my instructor told me to look at what he was doing we weren't about to do a stall 
but he was sort of, you know, describing what was going to happen and things like that. So my head was inside the cockpit at this point. And very easily his head could have been inside as well, you know, showing me what he was describing. But quite luckily at that moment, he, he was looking outside the window. And if you go and watch the video, you'll see it in, I'm not joking, in the space of about two seconds, he spots the jet heading straight towards us. He whips it to the right, you know, in the right direction in that circumstance. And, you know, um, collision avoidance with head-on collisions, you know, standard. Turns right. sta yeah, standard, standard procedure is to turn right. But, you know, in some situations, it might make sense to go left, you know, just, you, you know, in that split second. But so this he jet wasn't kind of if I've, I've seen the video, it wasn't really head on with you. It was coming at you from an angle. Wasn't oh, it, it was definitely from an angle. So if, you know, from the way we were seeing it, if the head, if the jet was doing a left turn whilst he was coming at us from that angle, it possibly would have made sense to go to the left. Mm. And, you know, kind of rules go out the window when you're trying to save your own life. So, you know, in that very split second, his precision reaction was absolutely incredible. So he just grabbed the stick, flung us to the right. Um, we essentially did a 180 orbit. But as we turn to the right, I look at him thinking, this definitely isn't what you were trying to show me. <laughs> like wondering <laughs> what on earth he's doing. And then as we bank to the right at quite a steep angle, I look up and without a joke, you know, you could see the whole detail of the jet and you know, anyone who watches the video, the video really doesn't do it justice at no. all. Especially it was um, filmed with a GoPro because they're wide angle lens as well. So oh, definitely. Away. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing as well is the GoPro is pointing forwards. So um, as we're banking away, the jet passes along the side of us and I look out to the left. Yeah, I could genuinely see the faces of the pilots passing by us. And that genuinely isn't an exaggeration. They were that close. So they zoomed by us. I took probably a good five seconds to process what just happened mm -hmm. and then proceeded to crap myself. And, um, and then all the time, my instructors, uh, you know, we, we sort of continue doing a 180 and then we see it flying off in the distance. And, you know, there, there's that initial element of what just happened. Then you have that sort of sense of, are we in the wrong place? You know, you know, you always hear of these, you know, these. Was well, that my fault kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And you always hear these instances where people accidentally strain to control their space and all this sort of stuff. But we knew where we were. We definitely weren't in controlled airspace. Um, you know, we weren't doing anything wrong. If anything, we were transponding uh, seven thousand as well. And apparently, you know, after the investigation, the jet actually had TCAS on board. All but, right. Okay. But from what their pilot said they didn't get an indication, which, you know, could either be an excuse or maybe it just didn't give them an indication. Yeah. But yeah, no. So we filed an air props in the air, landed back on the ground. Um, we had a, one or two statements to fill in about what happened. Mine was quite minimal because at the time I bet I knew barely anything about flying, but I just said what I seen essentially. Um, and we even submitted the footage to the CAA, uh, no, sorry, the air props board. And, um, yeah, after a while, they did an investigation and then the report came out. It was really interesting to read, actually, because um, you, you don't realise all the stuff behind the scenes, actually. So they actually had, you know, um, 
screenshots of radar images and all sorts, you oh, know, wow. of, of what happened. And when you're up there flying by yourself in the air, you don't think of any of this, you know, you just feel like you're out there by yourself, you know, you're, you're on your own essentially, but yeah, you don't realize all this is going on in the background. Um, and kind of like the, the, the sort of the, the process of, you know, the air props board isn't necessarily to, to plan, um, to, to blame someone or to, you know, to, to criticize someone, but essentially it's just to bring out all the, the negative elements of what went on, you know, so you can essentially learn from what happened yeah. and, um, you know, for, and going on from there, <laughs> I was scared to look in the cockpit for the next good five or six flights, you know? Um, but I, I can tell you, my scan is a lot better than most people at my, um, amount of hours <laughs> so, see that's also yeah. one thing i love about flight sport is is, is they're always keep, keep your head outside keep your head outside and i think that's what one thing that micro lighting in general is as well as a lookout seem to be be quite good and um, the one thing that i i do find a bit strange about your video there was is that you're at three thousand feet outside controlled airspace that's a very strange place to find a jet isn't it it's well yeah you know i'm not gonna judge what the you know the pilot was doing himself because again he you know everything he was doing was technically legal but then it makes you think should private twin jets be allowed to fly ifr at 240 knots in an area where people are flying around for pleasure at, at 70 to 80 knots you know it's because yeah. as, as you've seen the video and as you learn as you learn in the hpl studies you know the, the time between spotting a aircraft on a collision course and doing something about it genuinely is is seconds yeah and not even that you know from from it being a tiny dot in the sky to being you know full size in front of you is genuinely about one or two seconds so you know how you do how you do you know how you go about how that's legal sort of raises a question but it, it doesn't happen all the time so you know again it was just one of these rare circumstances yeah, I think in the eight years I've had a license, I've only had it happen the, the, the once as well. Uh, and that I was think, actually quite recently. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone gets a close call every now and then. But the, the thing that made this an airprox was that we we definitely felt the need to take avoiding action. And, def and you know, genuinely, in my opinion, we would have hit him if we didn't move. So. Yeah, yeah. And it, it ended up being, I think there's categories from A to F in terms of airprox. And clearly, if it's an air prox, you know, you're getting close enough anyway. Mm. Um, and ours was deemed a category A air prox. So essentially, wow. as close as it got before we ended up a fireball. So <laughs> thank God that didn't happen. But isn't no, it how, like, the one video like that ends up getting your the most, most viewed on your channel then? Yeah, no, it actually ended up in the BBC News as well. Oh, really? <laughs> quite interesting i was watching i was at a gasco meeting online actually a couple of weeks back and it was it was featured there as well oh was it on the online one because i was, remember yeah. i remember like the year after that that happened i went to a gasco meeting and they used that footage but i, I didn't know they still using using it to this day but yeah no clearly they are <laughs> yeah there you go something so you learn I, every day I, i'm glad that what happened to me is being used to help educate other people so it's well yeah it certainly is and then um, i think the discussion was something about gliders and towing and stuff and keeping a good lookout and yeah, uh, that yeah. was one of the videos and i remember actually sitting there and watching it and thinking well that, that's tom <laughs> <laughs> yeah so tom how long was it then um after that, that you you got your license 
Oh, it's really hard to say, actually. Um, you know, despite having the bursary, you know, the, the, the money was sort of sat there in, you know, the, the way they do it is they give it to the flying school, not to you. So you can't run off and use it for something else, which completely makes sense. Yeah. So in theory, um, I could have, you know, done all my training within, you know, a month or two, you know, just doing it full time or whatever. But like I say, I was at university, so I kind of just sort of took it slow, but I was still really keen, you know. So uh, probably at least once a, once or twice a week, I was doing my training. Um, and it's hard to say, actually. Um, I'd have to get my logbook out to see how long it took to get the license. But in total, um, you know, if eventually the money ended up uh, running out, which of course it would. Um, but then, you know, lucky enough, you know, you, you don't want to waste this opportunity that was given to you. So, you know, uh, lucky enough, I ended up getting some help from parents to help, you know, for, for fun, um, carry on flying once every two weeks or so, um, you know, self-fly hiring the aircraft uh, from flight sport. And that was really good because, you know, to do that at the weekends was amazing, especially when you're working really hard, um, you know, during the week at university. So, um, so yeah, no, it, I ended up doing just around 95 hours, I think, in microlights in total. Uh, absolutely loved it. And uh, actually only just recently on helicopters, I've only just gone over that. So I'm on 97 at the moment on helicopters. Wow. And um, But what's really weird about it, because I'm full-time training at the moment, it's going really quick with helicopters. And because of COVID and things like that, we're not allowed to take passengers up. So it feels like I've done way more flying on microlights than I ever have on helicopters. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was helped by the fact, you know, when you're taking mates up, you're having fun, you get, you know, flying to an airfield, having lunch and then flying back and things like that, you know. But um, I think as we all are hoping at the moment, you know, once COVID clears off, you know, we can start having some fun, so... 100% I, I'm itching to get back I miss air shows and it, it makes me laugh a bit actually that's the fact that all the air shows are getting cancelled but you might be able to be able to eat with a load of people in a restaurant but you can't stand yeah. in an open air field watching airplanes but um, yeah I do hope it gets back to normal soon and like you said well, we'll get, get flying again and we'll, we'll well, I hate to criticise how it how it gets run because you just you just use so much energy <laughs> complaining 100%, about it all so. 100% but you know that, that we're in aviation that's what we do best we complain you know it's just we complain oh, and we complain. fly <laughs> complain it's like the Instagram post I put up the other day you know it's like what, why is the most stunning weather like the most dangerous you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you, you just always find a, a you know a reason to complain about something you know because now i was at the airfield not that long ago um to self-fly higher the helicopter and the weather was stunning but you know loads of low level ground fog and things like that but it, it looked amazing but it was completely dangerous to take off so you know feet stayed firmly on the ground that day <laughs> so. it still made a good picture on the ground from what i've seen when you put it up oh really good yeah but that's the most i got out of that day <laughs> <laughs> it's closer to an aircraft than i've been in two months though so it's all right it's, it's your well, yeah there you go yeah <laughs> so tom you you're, you're you're fixed wing pilot first and then you were looking at uh i, th I think you joined a, a royal navy university unit first was there a point where you were looking at maybe joining the fleet air arm 
Well, actually, the, the whole reason I did it, um, as I was saying earlier, you know, the, the thing that got me into aviation primarily was watching air ambulances do their thing and just really wanting to be a part of that excitement and, you know, helping people and things like that. So, you know, I, I again, being that young, keen teenager, I, I spoke to as many people as I could. So I ended up getting tours of the air ambulance and even did work experience at Barton for a week. And, you know, you, you eventually find out that at least back then, um, probably what, about five years ago or something, you know, you, you speak to them and you realize that a lot of them are ex-military. And, you know, from there onwards, I, you know, I joined the air cadets, like most people, young people who are into flying do, um, which was amazing. Um, did a bit of flying with air cadets and, you know, you just get involved, go shooting, all that sort of stuff. And it's really fun. And then you sort of, well, I don't know about other people, but I definitely sort of developed a fondness of the military and the idea of, of being a pilot in the military. Um, so th then my, my sort of main focus shifted towards the military. Um, and then so, you know, that, that's all I was ever keen about doing from there onwards. So when I went to university, I, you know, they sort of m missed being a part of some sort of military unit. And yes, it was only cadets, but whilst I was at university, you know, you look at joining different societies, clubs, sports, and things like that, you know, and I joined a few of them and had a lot of fun, but I was just sort of, I was still missing something. Yeah. Um, so I knew straight away I wanted to sign up for a UAS, a university air squadron, because you essentially go flying for free and it's with the RAF, you know, what's better than that, you know, whilst you're studying. So, um, and you get paid for it as well. But, um, so I straight away, I think one of the first things I did at uni was sign up for the nearest one, but it just, it, it was completely impractical because the nearest one to Brighton was Boscombe Down, um, which was a two hour car or train drive away. And, you know, given with what goes on, you're not just flying and things like that. You know, there's a lot of socials, there's a lot of lectures and things like that going on. Um, so doing that, you know, all the time would have been exhausting. It would have cost a lot and it just really wasn't as much as I'd have loved to do it. It wasn't worth it, especially when there's, you know, there's a bit of focus to be done on studying as well. Yeah. You know, because you forget that's the whole reason why you're at university. <laughs> Um, so I, I naturally looked at, you know, anything similar and I realized that actually up the road, um, genuinely like five minutes from my uni house was the ERNU, so the University Royal Naval Unit. And so I thought, well, why not? You know, it's essentially the same as the UAS. It's just, instead of going flying, you go on ships instead. So, you know, and, and I thought, if I'm going to join the RAF or something, you know, having experience with the Navy and especially as an officer cadet, it's essentially the same thing. And, you know, the RAF, Navy and Army work together quite a lot anyway. So, you know, any experience is good experience. So um, I joined the Urnu and it was genuinely amazing. So I spent nearly three years with them and we did loads and loads of amazing things. I spent nearly a week at RNAS Yeovilton. Oh, wow. Where we got, so we got to play on the, uh, well, I say play, but yeah <laughs> we got an experience we got an experience on the uh the full motion wildcat simulators wow 
Um, we got to, uh, you know, tour all the hangars. We looked at Merlins, Wildcats and all sorts, um, fired up the ground power units on the Wildcats and playing with their um, infrared cameras and all sorts was absolutely amazing. And then visiting the armory, the fire station, you know, the length they went to for us was incredible. You know, they they rolled out the fire engines and we were gen genuinely blowing um, foam all over the taxiway and ju just just for fun, you know. So that, that was incredible. So, you know, you just get to do loads of really, really cool things that you just don't as a normal uni student. And it's not just doing cool things. It, it genuinely is, you know, adding something extra to your CV whilst you're at university. Like what yeah. employer isn't going to love that, you know? And that's the whole point of them, actually. So the RAF, UAS and the OTC, the Officer Training Corps for the Army, they're a little bit more focused on recruitment. So their entry requirements and things like that are a little bit more stricter than the UNU. But the UNU, I think quite rightly, has a... Uh, by the way, all of them don't require you to, you know, to join up afterwards. There's there's so there's no strings attached to it at all. Um, but they're a bit more focused on recruitment. But the, the Royal Navy, so the UNU, was, I think quite rightly, a little bit more different. They... Their main message was sort of to expand awareness about who the Royal Navy are and what they do mm. um, to all these people who join Ernu. And, you know, quite naturally, probably a good, yeah, I can't say the exact number, but three quarters to two thirds of us don't actually join up. But, you know, they sort of spread the message of, you know, actually what the Royal Navy does for the UK, you know you forget that 80 to 90% of our trade comes by sea. You know, just things like, you just learn things like that and you, you really appreciate what they do because not a lot of people know about the Navy or what they do actually. Cause it, you know, they're all focused about being at sea and you don't see any of that going on. You know, you see a lot about the RAF and the army and things like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's incredible. We, we were incredibly lucky enough to get tours of the new aircraft carrier, HMS wow. Queen Elizabeth um which again you know what uni student gets to do things like that um you know we, we've toured uh type 23 uh frigates and we've done loads of stuff you know we've done loads of charity stuff as well which was incredible so i think you might know yourself but um located close by to brighton was the blind vets yeah so um so we went to their building quite often and, you know did a few charity events for them um and essentially, we did a lot of things called Royal Navy in the public eye. So we just essentially represented the Navy. Brilliant. But, had, but genuinely had amazing fun whilst doing it. And we got to go to Dartmouth twice and, wow. you know, just spending time at these establishments, you know, that the Royal family have, you know, been to and, and trained at, you know. And the, the, this building where every single Royal Navy officer, you know, in, in the past has been trained at, you know, it's just incredible. So... Yeah, and you know, and you get paid to do it as well, and it's all in your spare time. So we go to sea as well. So there's summer uh, deployments. So um, the Royal Navy actually has a fleet of, uh, I might be wrong, but it's about 14 um, P2000s. So they're sort of offshore. Um, they're just a coastal patrol craft. Um, they're quite small, but they're still called warships, <laughs> <laughs> even, even though they're unarmed. Um, 
but yeah, you, you go out to sea on them. You do summer deployments, things like that. You, you do sea weekends as well. So, you know, you can do those quite often. And you do loads of cool stuff. And unfortunately, I never did uh, did this myself. But um, my girlfriend, she, this, it's where I, met, where I met my girlfriend from as well. But she did something really cool that they normally do annually. But obviously, it's been called off this year, called Bolt Ops. So okay. they go up. So they go up to the Baltics with the Royal Navy and a load of NATO uh, allies, and because these were quite small ships, we'd essentially go up and play the bad guy for all the, <laughs> for all the huge warships. Love it. So so they'd be driving the, the the boats at full speed towards full size destroyers, and you know they they'd be going about their procedures essentially, obviously not doing it for real, but blowing you out the water and things like that. So it's just like a massive think, war game, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think, I think uh, as a joke as well, at one point, uh, one of the, I've seen the picture, one of them gets out, um, you know, the tube for a Hoover and pretends it's an RPG, <laughs> just things like that. It's, you know, it's absolutely incredible. But no, I can't recommend it enough to anyone who's going to university. So even if it's the army, RF or the, uh, no, you know, is it getting paid to do loads of this cool stuff? And yes, yeah, so sorry, I blabbered on a bit, but no, no, by all means, you you work away. I'm enjoying uh, it. <laughs> yeah, you know. So going back to the, your original question, um, you know, originally I was all about the RAF, but after having loads of exposure to what the Navy are all about, I quite naturally developed more of a bias towards the fleet era at yeah. that point. And uh, my argument was was that if you get accepted into the fleet era you're not going to be flying anything boring at all because no. all all they've got are merlins wildcats hawks and f-35s you know the, the you know the raf to be honest i can't say this at all because i'd be happy flying anything they fly but you know the raf have such a bigger fleet of aircraft you know you you could you could want to be a fast jet pilot but then you'd get put on multi-engine transport or something but you know my argument was that you know i my primary um, preference was rotary anyway. Mm. So if you were to join up for the fleet air arm and put, be put on rotary, that'd be amazing. But then if they, sh they shift you towards fast jet, who's going to complain about that? Exactly. You, know? so, you were in a win-win situation, really. Exactly. Uh, no, but I ended up leaving university. And um, yeah, essentially flying training became an option to me. Um, you know, really fortunate. Um and just after speaking to a lot of people, I really don't want to badmouth the military at all. But the, the whole process of becoming a pilot is not, not only stressful, you know, there's a lot of work to do. And quite rightly, the people who get selected, you know, genuinely deserve it. But, um, you know, there's, there's a ton and a ton of work to be done. Um, and despite being astronaut level, you know, candidate, there's just no guarantee that they'll accept you. You know, it's just, you know, the amount of people who apply, um, the amount of people who are incredibly more qualified than you to do the job. And then not only having been accepted, but then going from start to finish without being chopped on your, you know, flight training, then there's, there's no guarantees. And so the, the, the way I seen it was, especially because it became a possibility for me, um, as much as I'll forever regret it, um, I, I went the civilian route um, just because you know that as long as you don't fail your exams, 
you know, you're definitely going to become a helicopter pilot. Yeah. You know, so it, for me, it was just a lot more of a surefire way of, of going about a career really. Um, but like I say, I'll always miss that uh, military touch. So already, even though I'm full-time training, I've become a civilian instructor at the local air cadet squadron and things Same like that. You know? Yeah. So I'll always want to stay in touch with it all, but you know, um, I think quite naturally the the way that um, the, the the industry shifting, you know, because it used to forever be that you know that the best people were all ex military, and you know they'd always take ex military pilots, but just you know as all the um, aircraft are becoming a lot more developed, and um, you know they're, they're more expensive essentially, you know, I think you know an F thirty five is over a hundred million pounds and things like that, so. Um, they're, they're quite naturally the 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 RAF are taking on fewer pilots because they don't need as many, um, so there's fewer retiring, and they're trying to keep hold of their pilots as well, you know, because yeah. when they spend so much money on training them, you know, it'd be silly to see them go after a few years. So, and that you know, I think the I can't say how it works because I don't know enough about it, but essentially, there's less ex-military coming out into the civilian world than there was a few years ago. So. Uh, quite naturally, like air ambulances, police, um, search and rescue, they're they're just taking on experienced civilian pilots, and I was really blown away because I was again fortunate enough to go and tour the London Air Ambulance Base, um, on top of the Royal London Hospital in London, wow. and um, having spoken to all of their well, the pilots who were on shift that day anyway, um, which was incredible. Um, they told us, I, I was really surprised that all of the pilots they have, there isn't a single one who's ex-military. Wow, and you'd, okay. think, and you, you'd think for London Air Ambulance, especially it being London, with the airspace they've got, you know, the, the really confined areas that they land in and things like that, that they'd have the most experienced pilots that they can. And they do, but most, they're all civilian. They're not ex-military. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's... Um, that was really interesting to see. So again, that that softened the the pain of not having applied for the military myself. But um, no, so that that seems to be the way it's going, and I wouldn't be surprised if in you know it, this is way into the future. But they might completely do away with manned aircraft systems anyway. You know, because mm. you know, because the yeah, again, I'm not qualified to speak about it really. But you know the. Um, you know, the, the human is the limiting factor when, when, when engineering gets so developed, you know, and these, these systems can pull way more than 9G, you know, but the pilot inside can't do any more than that, you know, so, yeah. um, especially for high-end fighting anyway, I think, you know, they'll, they'll completely do away with pilots anyway. Yeah, I can see that happening. I know recently I read it somewhere that they've just uh, they just flight tested a drone version of a Jet Ranger. I think it is a Bell two hundred six. Um, yeah, yeah. And it 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 looks really strange, but it's quite cool watching the video of it, knowing that there's someone sat like me and you at a computer as if they're playing Microsoft Flight Simulator. <laughs> well, I can say on that ground that I'm fully qualified for that job anyway. <laughs> Honestly, if I if I had the hours in real life that I have on Flight Simulator, I'd be the most qualified pilot in the world. So. I know that feeling. I'd be a Red Bull pilot. I'd be an aeronautic <laughs> pilot. I'd be a test pilot. I'd be a celebrity, yeah. <laughs> but then again, then again, the amount of crashes I've had on Flight Simulator would have made me the most 
Yeah, lucky enough touch wood. Ever. I've never had any in real life. It's all been on the flight sim. Oh yeah, yeah. But actually, going off that, um, obviously, I moved to start uh, rotary training. Um, I re- I really can't say that you know that I can't officially say that it, it's a huge benefit, really. But when I got onto you know, obviously, playing flight sim for so long, um. If, if eventually but flying planes around actually kind of bored me so i ended up buying a joystick and rudder pedals and stuff to plug into the computer and um essentially just love flying helicopters around you know landing yeah. in really you know just take, taking a mic basically landing in the, the grounds of buckingham palace and things like that you know but um i loved them i really loved the motion of it you know just you know flying sideways and transitioning into different forms of flight and you know really precisely controlling it i really loved the feel for it so when i started helicopter training i actually had a really really good sense just just a good sense of how it worked Mm. obviously i had i didn't know how it actually felt in real life or anything like that but i knew that you know if i was to push forward on the cyclic it would tilt forward and start flying forward and I knew that, you know, from experience on the simulator, I'd need a bit more power to keep it level and just things like that. So um, I don't I don't want to overestimate my own abilities at all because, you know, I can fall short in other areas completely. But when it came to learning to hover it, um, I got it within the first two hours, completely all three controls by myself. And, you know, it, it usually takes someone with no experience, you know, a good few more hours to nail yeah, it. Yeah. So... I can definitely say that flight sim definitely helped, um, especially on the knowledge side of it. But obviously, when it comes to proper formal training, nothing beats the real thing. So. Well, that's it. I'm finding myself now during lockdown. I haven't flown since December, and I'm finding myself I've got a C42 on uh, on flight sim, and I find myself sitting down with the checklist and actually replicating all the checks. But like you said, again, oh flying. yeah, yeah. The real well, again, again, there's a brilliant video that uh, John, the uh, the flying reporter, did um, again during lockdown. But he got you know his own version of his plane on X plane. Um, I forgot what it's called now. I think it's Vatsim. Where I've heard can, of Vatsim. Yeah, where people can essentially just hook up online um, and fly together virtually with you know people simulating proper air traffic control and things like that. Mm. So he's shown a video of him essentially flying the plane ifr like you would in real life but i just found it really interesting you know yeah yeah just almost how flawless they made it because anyone who's flown simulator and real life will know just how frustrating simulators are because you can't look to the left and see the airfield whilst you're doing a circuit or do you know what i mean you, you can't and you know you to, to, I don't know to, to control a certain element that you normally have a lever to do really simply you've got to do a few keystrokes and you know yeah, it's like six presses of the f button <laughs> yeah 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 my favorite one I think I, I, again it's been a while now but I think you had to hit like shift f and then like tap one really quick but really precisely and that would open the door <laughs> so yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah but you know if you, if you took a second too long or too short you know it wouldn't work and just really weird things like that but i don't know that was part of the fun of flying flight sim wasn't it well the one thing i found with flight sim as well is it's going back to like it doesn't substitute training so at dean land i don't know if you know yourself now yeah. um we've got a new kind of dog leg on a um, kind of two four so you take off uh there's 
boards you have to keep on your left hand side so you do a kind of a, a kick 10 degrees um and, cl- and climb out but coming yeah in, i remember that yeah yeah coming yeah. in we, we now have to follow that um this new thing so it's kind of like a dog leg so we're, we're about 100 100 to 150 feet you have to do with a slight little kink of a left turn to to yeah. line up with the right fully i've practiced this so many times on flights in but because there's no detail i could have been teaching myself something completely different yeah, yeah, no, of course, of so. course. No, it, it, it'll never replace the real thing. But, you know, for, for someone who can't afford to go flying, you know, you know, you know, even people who go flying, you can't, you can, you can never afford to go flying as much as you want to. No. You know, I, I'd be up in the air more than I am on the ground if that was possible. But, you know, th- that's what flight sims for, isn't it? It's just exactly. giving you that little kick that you need at the weekend before you start. It doesn't fully scratch again. the yeah. itch, but it takes away most of the pain. Oh, no, but it's fun in its own right, though, isn't it? You can do things that you can never do in real life. Like one of the things I, you know, used to do was set sort of like 140 knot headwind and then hover a 737 <laughs> off the runway. And <laughs> I was genuinely blown away the day when I, I did a full circuit with 140 knot wind. Um, so you know we took forever to go upwind when and turning crosswind you sort of get blown downwind at the same time so you make it one motion and then you can line up on final and take forever to come in above the runway adjust the throttle and essentially land vertically on the runway in a 737 like you can only do that the numbers yeah you can only do that in a sim (laughs) (laughs) i love it i remember setting it one time actually to something ridiculous crosswind and then trying to take off on it. And uh, literally, I got about four seconds into the takeoff roll before I was upside down, bl- rolling like a uh, like a tumbleweed t- yeah. towards the tower and the terminal. And I was like, oh, no, that's, that's not going to work for me. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, d- I do remember the first day I actually flew uh, my own flight sim, and that was it, was, it was a disaster. But I'll always remember it, though, it, you know. Do you guys get any sims in in the heli train? Like, have you guys got any, like you described at the Wildcat, um, any full-on simulators before you're into the real thing? So, no, but yes. Um, <laughs> so, when when you're going through your commercial training, your you know your private pilot's license and things like that, you know it, it's all done on the real thing. You know you you know you learn to hover, you all of that sort of stuff, but. Having said that, Heli Center have um, actually have got there. I think they're actually XRAF uh, squirrel simulators. Oh wow! But like I say, it doesn't replace the real thing. But they're using them now. They've they've got them fully certified for IFR training. Oh wow! So okay. so no, we don't have simulators for helicopter training. But um, you know, Heli Center have just started doing their first. Uh, ever few um, ir courses and they've got the simulators to go, to go along with that course and they've, they've just bought a you know a beautiful 109 mm. that now takes up a lot of space in the hangar but you can't blame it at all it looks fantastic um there's a few pictures on my instagram of that but yeah no it's it's really nice but yeah so they, they've started ir training so that's the only time you'll possibly see simulators at, at, at this level of mm. flying because you know naturally when you go off to say a company like bristow or something you know you 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 sort of get the gist of flying you know like something as big as the s92 in the simulators you learn all the emergencies on it and you know again that cuts down the cost of training but then 
you then go do training on the proper thing. But the, you know, the whole point of the sim is to reduce the amount of time you spend in the actual thing just to save money. Yeah, but that's yeah. more that's a, that's a big commercial type thing. But you know, when we're training PPL to CPL sort of level, yeah, there's no simulators involved. What's your plan now, Tom? Because you've got you've got the PPLH, which is a helicopter license. Um, you're obviously going on to do the the commercial side of it. What, what what's yeah. your plans? So the is it like I say, the dreams air ambulance. <laughs> it will forever be air ambulance. You know, I, I'll never turn a job like turn down a job like the police or such and rescue or anything like that. But, um, you know, the, the, the goal is sort of air ambulance, you know, but if I go off and do something else, I'm not too fussed. Um, the course I'll actually dip into why I'm doing the helicopter training anyway. I was quite um, interested of why, cause you, you've got your foot in the door with fixed wing, having a microwave yeah, license yeah. under your belt. So what made you, I know you've had a fascination with rotary, but what made you spin off from, I'm going to start from scratch <laughs> go for a rotary license. A spin off pun, in, pun intended. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> um, so um, no, so actually, like I say, it, it became possible to uh, do commercial training. So I think quite naturally the, the, the first place I went to was the Heathrow careers conference, which again, it all sort of fell into place because it became possible to commercially train. And then quite literally like um, only a few weeks after the Heathrow careers conference was on. So um so we got tickets to go to that and I went there with a completely open mind. You know, I've always been into aviation and know a lot about it, but when it actually comes to going about starting training, I was, I was at square one essentially. Yeah. So, um, so I went to the Heathrow careers conference and went round, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of flying schools, you know, so you had all the huge ones there like CAE, you know, L3, um, you know, all the big ones were there. You know, I was still really interested to hear from all the smaller ones as well. Um, but out of the people who were there, obviously the military were there as well, but <laughs> we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> we, um, the, out of everyone who was there, there was only two helicopter schools there. And um, one of them was... Um, sort of a branch off of a fixed wing school I, you know i don't remember the name of it or anything but it was sort of a branch off a of fixed wing school so their helicopter operation was actually really small yeah um but and you know i think their focus at the the center as well was a bit more on their fixed wing side of flying as well but then i came across heli center and i actually this again this was really really weird because I have flown at HeliCenter before, and this was, again, Sam Abbott, who, well, I was speaking to, you know, I was speaking to you before we did this recording, um, who was a, a friend that I knew from um, Deanland. He did his rotary training at HeliCenter, and um, he took me up as his first passenger. And again, you can see this on my YouTube channel. We, we went up um, on quite a hazy day, flew around for a bit, and then... Um, and you know that was that but it was it was a really good flight and again i had barely any time on helicopters at all so um so it did that that made for a great video you know recommend people to watch it but then went back down to brighton and continued at uni and things like that you know flying microlights never did i have any idea that i'd be training there you know a, a year or two after yeah. but so no so i came across heli center's uh stall 
at the careers conference and um they i think you know it's their job to but quite naturally they sold the course to me <laughs> but it, it completely it completely made sense though and the way they worded it was um and again, it's not just them pushing the sale. You know, I completely agreed with it. And again, I I already had quite a big bias towards rotary anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. I think it was from all that time playing flight sim that you know just you know the the way I seen it was you know you, you do a lot more different things on a day to day basis in rotary than you would in fixed wing. Yeah. Um. So, so um the the the, the way it was sort of put to me was for the exact same cost that it takes to get your frozen ATPL with one of the big schools, um, in hell, you know, for this, for the same amount, you get a commercial helicopter license, mm. two type ratings and a guaranteed job with heli center afterwards as an instructor. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. So, um, so no, sorry, I, I said that wrong. So yeah, commercial license, two type ratings, a, flight instructor course and a guaranteed job with heli sensor wow. and then when i compared it to you know no specific school this is generally sort of how fixed wing works anyway but then when i compared that to commercial training with a fixed wing school having a frozen atpl and no type ratings um you know no, no type rating on a big airliner which essentially what your goal is anyway you know yeah. so then after spending that amount of money and then having to fork out an extra 60 to 70, I, I don't know what the cost is, but it's quite a lot. I think it's between 30 to 60 K mm. on just getting a type rating on something like an A320 or a 737. I'd already have a job and two type ratings from HeliCenter. Yeah. So, you know, you'd have the type rating on the Cabri G2, which you do most your training on, a small two-seater aircraft which doesn't have really any commercial benefit to it because, you know, if you did, you'd only be flying one passenger. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, you do all your training on that. You'd get your commercial license. Um, included in the cost of my course was an R44 type rated, which has a lot of commercial, you know, possibility to it. And HeliCenter do actually use it a lot commercially for pipeline operations and things like that. Um, so you get your commercial license and then straight onto a flight instructor's course. And then after that, a guaranteed job with them as a fly instructor. And then hopefully being able to instruct on both a Cabri and an R44. So, you know, that, that that's what cemented it for me because one of the biggest struggles I know, because I've got quite a few friends who are doing fixed wing training is one of the, one of the biggest struggles is once you've got your frozen ATPL, you know, you've spent all that money and possibly, you know, you have to start paying that money back. You don't have a job, you don't have a tie rating. And, you know, it, it just, the, what it was, you know, I don't want to criticize that way of doing things because obviously, you know, that that's how it's done. You know, yeah. that's people do it that way and it, and it works for them. But for me, that what cemented it was the guaranteed job at the end. And, yeah. I think as anyone knows, like one of the, you know, your worth as a pilot is essentially the amount of hours you've got, you know, your experience. So, um, like I say, not only having a guaranteed job, but a guaranteed job as an instructor where you could be flying max 
excuse me, max up to about, I think between 600 and 800 hours a year. Yeah. You know, spending a few years as an instructor could, you know, you, you then, you know, your employability just shoots up in the space of a very short space of time, you know, um, the, the only downside is that eventually if you want some of the top jobs, you need an instrument rating, mm. which, um, unfortunately in the fix in, sorry, in the rotary world means, you know, in the UK, we, we sort of only do it on twin engine helicopters, Okay. Um, you know, for redundancy, redundancy and things like that. I think in the U S it works a bit differently. You can do it on single engines. Um, but the thing that drives the cost of, of that is not necessarily the instrument rating itself. Um, you know, because a lot of that's theory and time in the air practicing instrument approaches and things like that. But the big cost of it is needing to get a type rating on a big twin engine helicopter, like a one Oh nine or something like that. Yeah. Um, to do your IR training. So that's the only sort of downside to it in the future, you know, but eventually, you, you know, you can save up and you can, you know, you can afford that in the future. And the benefit of that is then doing any job that requires an IR. So, you know, like air ambulances, flying offshore oil and gas and things like that. Mm. Um, like I say, you can get into the, the career, into the industry, you know, purely just VFR as a commercial pilot and yeah. instructor um so yeah that, that's why i sort of went rotary and it it wasn't necessarily going rotary it's just what the course offered but in my head it was also a benefit that it's helicopters <laughs> there's that and like, i didn't know any of this until you started talking to me about, about what heli center were offering and yeah. even though i've always wanted uh, to fly helis i've been fortunate enough to have a spin in in, in quite a few helis and um yeah. It's, it's always it's just what you can do with them that fascinates me and before it's on my bucket list before i die i'm gonna have a heli license and, yeah um, yeah yeah it, it's, just, it's just one of those things you know and <laughs> but from what you've told me now i've looked at the airline route and i've mm. gone off the airline route completely in the last kind of five years um just because of uh it, it, like, like you said you've it's loads of money you're getting loads of um it, you're coming out with loads of debt and no nothing to do with it uh, yeah. And you're getting there is two type ratings in the back pocket and an instructor's rating and a commercial license for the, for the same price. For the same price. But also, again, the, the thing that baffled me was that it's on helicopters. You know, when you think of it is how it works, but, you know, naturally getting your PPL on a helicopter is almost double the cost of getting your aeroplane PPL. But like I say, uh, for some reason, you know, when you go in into this commercial level sort of, of training, it actually works out kind of, it, it, it might be just the courses that HeliCenter offer that it works out like this. Um, I, I don't, I, you know, HeliCenter is the only helicopter school I've known. So um, going to a different school, I don't know how they work things, but, you know, on the PPL level side of things, yeah, it's, helicopters are way more expensive and, you know, to, to fly them and self-fly hire them for fun, it's like double the cost of a fixed wing, you know, completely uneconomical you know, for, for the benefit of just flying something with spinny wings. But, um, you know, at the commercial level, like I say, for, for the money between, you know, the, the comparison between the two, it works out better and it's helicopters, which you perceive yeah. to be way more expensive anyway. So it almost doesn't add up. But when you look at it in its component parts, it really doesn't. It's, it's, it's really well worth it if it's, you know, an option. So 
because I always did wonder why so many people went for commercial fixed wing licenses rather than commercial heli licenses. Because when you talk to to your mates or anything like that, and I know myself um, working in the airline industry at the moment, uh, you hear lots of people being like, "Oh, you know, I flew flew this, that, and I'm a captain on on this," and but no one has ever said, "Oh, yeah, I'm I'm a captain for Bristow or I'm a captain for the air ambulance." No, no. One well, said- I think that they do. It's just the proportion of commercial. Uh, airline to commercial heli pilots is huge. I think mm. I got told by our head of training at Heli Center recently that I think of all those in the industry just within the UK is about, and I'm talking commercial pilots, not complete, you know, rotary. Um, just commercial rotary pilots is about 1,500. Oh, wow. And, okay. Yeah. And what was really interesting, and again, this you know, we, we can move on to the fixing side in a second, but what's really interesting as well is that a big proportion of those, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but a good 400 or odd, uh, I think over 50. So within yeah. the next 10 years, a huge amount of those are going to be retiring. Yeah. And, and again, we're looking at the commercial world now. Again, we can't, I can't, no one can ever forecast this because COVID's just thrown a massive curveball into it because, you know, a lot of places have really unfortunately had to lay off loads of pilots and cabin crew and things like that. But putting COVID aside for a second, you know, they, they say, and I think they have for years now, but they say that, you know, that the, the demand for airline pilots is going up. And some people say at a huge amount, some people say a little amount, but in general, they say that it's going up. But you look at the amount of people going through training, um, you know, it's like eventually the, the, the way they work the system might have to be changed or they're going to have to start bringing out bursaries or something because yeah, yeah. How, how, the, how they fill the gap, uh, I have no idea. Um, now, I guess COVID's put hold on all of that because now there's a lot of pilots out there you know, who could fill the gap because they, you know, they're unfortunately out of a job. So, you know, there's, I presume that that rate of uh, pilot demand has probably been reduced now yeah, uh, quite, quite a lot, but uh, I, if, how it works for the rotary world, I'm, I have no idea because even during COVID, a lot of rotary operations have still continued, Like you know, the, the police still need to operate air ambulance, search and rescue, you know, offshore oil and gas still operates because we still need to fuel our cars. So, you know, it's um, how that's been effective. I don't think we'll know for a while yet. But like I say, quite a huge proportion of rotary pilots are going to retire in the next few years. So apparently to get rotary training anytime between now and the next uh, about 10 years or so is a really good time to start training. So. Brilliant. And that's towards commercial license, not just PPLs. I was going to say, because I think I was chatting, chatting to my dad recently about this, that I always wanted to be a, a helicopter pilot. He said, by all means, go and do it. But he said, if you're going to do a PPL wise, he said, getting is going to be the cheap part. He said, it's going to be maintaining it afterwards is going to be the, the hard part. Yes. Uh, and that's why I find myself incredibly fortunate to be doing it this way around, because, you know, I think to become a fixed wing pilot and fly rotary for fun is a little harder than it is to fly rotary commercially and then fly something as affordable as micro lights, um, you know, for fun 
is you know probably a more sustainable way round of doing it um but yeah like i say i'm always going to come back to micro lights when it becomes a possibility like definitely like it, once you've had a taste for it <laughs> you, you definitely it, want to you want to do it again it's addictive isn't it it's like with, with micro lights it, it's just the like you said it's, it's the most affordable way to fly at the moment um for anyone looking at getting into it and it's it's just so addictive you get up like you said you go to the isle of white you have a barbecue with your mates you have a formation flight home um yeah you, you can just hop in whenever, whenever to, just to go and it's affordable and you, you just yeah you just have fun doing it oh the like the freedom you have to do it and again this I, I think this is what might have increased my following a bit on youtube as well was the sort of freedom you have to do what you want and um i think david from the airfield and shelly they were brilliant because you know as long as i wasn't doing anything you know outside of normal procedure they were pretty much happy for me to do whatever i wanted so you know we did a few silly things like i made um i made like a spoof documentary about um the RAF using micro lights instead of fighter jets. Um, I have a bone to pick with you about that, actually. I, okay, well, yeah. So, what what we what we did was uh, me and my mates from the naval unit uh, pretending to be RAF, and you know we weren't we weren't at all impersonating the RAF. We were just pretending, and um, we we pretended to scramble a micro light as a part of the quick reaction alert. Um, because of budget cuts to the MOD, um, so we did that. I and I went up and intercepted and flew in formation with, uh, you know, my mate. We we'd all fully pre-flight planned this and everything, but nah, we and we did that sort of to commemorate the RAF centenary, and it was a proper good laugh. Like that was it was really fun to do, and then we just did other stuff. Like one of the other things that I did that I didn't really realize the significance of when I did it was going and landing at Dunsfold, like landing on the Top Gear runway. I did watch was, that. That was really cool. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. The only thing I regret about it was the the amount of sunlight that day completely like whitewashed some of the outside looking cameras. Mm. And because of this stuff that goes on there, they weren't too keen for us to film on the ground as well. So the amount of the airfield that you actually see isn't great in the video, but just on final approach, looking at the racetrack, looking at the, the huge, you know, that iconic 747 in the background um, and landing on the same Top Gear runway that they filmed so many world famous episodes on, you know, was just, again, it hits you after you've done it. Like it was that I'd like to go back again before, it, you know, I think they, you know, they change it or rip it apart or whatever. So. Well, if you're up for that, give me a shout. I definitely be up for it for doing it as well. And then I'm always up for it. I'll do it now if it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do you, how do you go about getting permission to do that? Like, cause I, I always thought, cause it's a closed airfield. You, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get near it. Well, Dunsfold. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. I, I called them, said, can I have PPR? Just, I'm just coming to visit. I think I was quite honest. I was just like, I want to land on the Top Gear runway. And whenever they're not filming, it is an operational airfield. Okay. Um, you know, they because when I, when I flew in there, there was someone doing some circuits there and stuff. So it's not, it's not disused at all, but that's saying what it was back then. I have no idea what it's like now. But Yeah, yeah. Um, Might be worth a phone call once, uh, once we can fly again. Well, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't know how busy it is. Like I say, it's still operational. They, they had a guy in the tower. It was only air ground, but they still had someone in the tower and stuff. So, yeah. you know, as far as I'm aware, you can visit, but um, 
again, I, I don't know what it's like in terms of PPR because this was quite a while ago now. I, I just called them up and they said, yeah, you can come in. So brilliant. Yeah, that's so, brilliant. Going back to that RAF video. So I watched that and I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that's a really cool one. Until I found the TikTok version of it, of the Irish Air Corps <laughs> scrambling their airplanes. <laughs> oh, I was hoping you wouldn't watch that. <laughs> Right, the, the way I'm going to justify this is that it's okay because I'm a quarter Irish myself. <laughs> half, half of my family is Irish, um, but no, it was it was it was genuinely just banter. Um, and the amount of video, the amount of views that got was quite funny actually. Um, and then if you go into the comments, the the amount of people <laughs> having little tiffs in the comment section about like. I don't know, just between the, the, the banter between the Irish and the British in that video is, is quite good. For anyone who hasn't seen it, the joke was that the Irish scramble their aircraft, but it's only a little thing, <laughs> you know, it's like micro light or something. Because <laughs> I think what inspired me to make that, obviously the video was already filmed because it was a YouTube video. I just put a bit of Irish music and a bit of text overlay to put it on TikTok. But um, the thing that actually inspired me to make that was I watched a really funny um, video. I think it was Brian Cox. Okay. Um, I think it was Brian Cox. And he said he was doing something with the RAF. And this, it might have been in a Top Gear interview, I think. But I can never find it. But I just remember how funny it was when he said it. Um, he said he was flying with the RAF. And what they were doing was they were chasing the sun. So the sun was setting. Yes, I yeah, watched you this. Might have, yes, you he might have seen it. had to go it. on a typhoon or something, and they yes, let it so, sit, and then fast no, so, the right. sound. Yeah, so, yeah, so what they did was um, they, the, the sun, they let the sun set off in the west, and they were flying this. I think they said they were flying it out of uh, Wharton, actually. So it's already on the west coast of the UK. So they flew... They let the sun set. They flew the uh, typhoon, obviously quicker than the rotation of the Earth. So um, they watched the sun rise again as they were flying towards it. And obviously, this is the reason you get jet lag going across the Atlantic and things like that, because daylight times are just messed up because you're, you know, you're playing with the sun, essentially. But the, the thing that was really funny about the interview was um, they said... Um, that when they were doing this, they didn't notify the Irish that they were going to fly their typhoon very fast towards their airspace or something like this. So, but oh, I think no. I think I think the way Brian Cox put it was that, that the RAF pilots said, um, "Oh, it's okay because all they're going to do is crap themselves and launch their Cessnas." <laughs> so that, yeah, obviously that made me laugh quite a bit, but. All right, we got rid of the Cessnas. They've been replaced by Pilatus PC-12s now. Well, actually, what made me really laugh was I, I looked up Irish military capability capability recently, and obviously they've got quite some, you know, high-tech aircraft and things like that. But what made me laugh was actually they do have Cessnas, you know, as a yeah, part yeah. of tra training aircraft. And I thought it was a joke, but they actually have them. <laughs> but no, it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, know. That was just a little spoof of a TikTok video I made, but obviously it seems to hit quite well with people. <laughs> yeah, I came across it and I, I was meant, meant to say it to you the other night, actually, but um, it, it slipped my mind. <laughs> so, Tom, that yeah. brings me on to, to the next thing, because you, you've done something quite cool. You, you ran a Lancaster simulator. How in the name of uh, God did I, you get into that? I nearly forgot we were going to talk about that. So 
coming towards the end of university, I was looking for a job. Um, I, I had a job for about a year as um, not as an estate agent, but I was kind of like an assistant estate agent because the, the, the agency who took me on were brilliant. They were a local uh, agency in uh, Brighton called Maslin Estate Ag Agents. Obviously, if you're looking for a house, <laughs> go buy with them. But I, I don't know how many people are in Brighton listening to this. But um, yeah, and how many people are looking for a house. But no, I, I used to work for them. Um, but they were brilliant because they took me out. They weren't looking for anyone. But I went around handing my CV in because I'd spent a few years previously as a bartender. Um, and I'd done that for quite a few years and had a great laugh doing it um, in Manchester. Then I moved down to Brighton, worked for quite a while as a bartender at the Hilton in Brighton. Um, but then, you know, I, I left that job and essentially wanted to do something different. And because I was at university, you know, having the most fun you have in your life, you know, I still wanted something a little bit that, you know, that could add to the CV. Mm. I've only ever done stuff that looked good on your CV, you know? Yeah. So I, I went searching for something that required you to be in a suit, you know, every day and sort of thing. And, um, so I, I just put in my CVs around all the agencies around Brighton, just, you know, cause it was just something different, you know, it's not everyone's preferred part-time job, but it was just different for me. So I handed all the CVs in, um, they took me on really well cause they weren't looking for anyone, but they said, you can work for us at weekend if you want. So I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And essentially, you know, you earned their trust by doing loads of boring paperwork type stuff, you know, signing ID documents and all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, took people around on tours of houses and stuff at the weekend, which was actually great because it'll always be on my CV for, um, for the, the amount of time that I spent with different people, yeah. you know, you know, you know, cause especially being a uni student, all you're ever doing is you're partying and you're, you're having fun with people your own age. So yeah. the, the, the experience I got mixing with a huge range of people, you know, people, you know, pensioners right the way down to really young couples looking for their first house, you know? So the skills you get learning to talking and building a rapport in a very short space of time with people of loads of different backgrounds and age ranges was brilliant. But I eventually le left that job after, a, I think, a year of doing that. And um, I went to Shoreham uh, Airport, which was only about half an hour away from where my accommodation was in Brighton. And again, just handed my CVs into every school that was there. You know, even if they weren't looking for anyone, I still went in the door and said, you know, can I speak to whoever's in charge or whatever? So I did that and I did it at Perrier at um, Shoreham. And I didn't know much about what they did, but I knew they were flying school. I was just basically saying, if you want someone to clean the planes, you know, tow them around or do paperwork, you know, then I'm looking for a job like that. So after speaking to them, you know, really sort of putting across my enthusiasm for aviation, because yeah. especially doing uni work, you know, full time, working as a, you know, a part time estate agent at the weekends and stuff, I just really wanted that you know, even though I was flying for fun every now and then, um, with flight sport, you know, I just really wanted that time, you know, back, you know, spending time at the airport, you know, and when you're doing stuff like that, it doesn't feel like work at all. So, um, I, you know, just, they, they, they were brilliant enough to take me on because what he said to me was, I haven't got a job for you at all, 
you know, we, we're not looking to take anyone on. And quite naturally, you know, flying schools, uh, with not a huge operation, you know, have to be careful about their money because they're operating aircraft. You know, they're operating on very operating on very slim budget, sorry, on profit margins and things yeah. like that. So, you know, he was like, we, you know, we can't take you on because we're, we're not looking for anyone. But he said, and he pointed through the window into the hangar, he said, if you look in that back corner there, we've got a Lancaster bomber flight simulator that's essentially just collecting cobwebs. And he said, if you want to get that up and running, that can be your job. Um, so, I, you know, looking for, for a new job, I was definitely like, well, why not? Um, I was the president of the Aeronautical Society at university. So we did a lot of simulate. Uh, it was brilliant. My, my university had quite a few simulators. Oh, brilliant. So, so I had quite a bit of experience doing that. Obviously, hours upon hours of my own simulator time, you know, playing on uh, flight simulators. So um, I was like, yeah, definitely love to do it. Um, and given, you know, the average age of the instructors at the school as well, you know, none of them were either knew about you know how to get into making a simulator work but also they probably just didn't have the interest either so um they took me on um and it was brilliant because summer had just hit so there was absolutely no uni to do at all so i went every single day and the the best bit of it was apart from any time i needed to spend money to make it better um he just left me to it yeah. So I, ju I just went, I looked at it. I, I genuinely, I just ripped it all apart, remembering where everything was plugged in <laughs> um, <laughs> because I wanted it to work when I pl plugged it all back in again. But no, I ripped it all apart. We moved it. Um, my dad actually came down from Man Manchester because my dad's a, a builder, like a joiner. So he came down for free and built a room around the simulator. Oh, wow. Um and um, we, we painted the floors and we, the, the whole point of it was to make it an experience. And as far as we're aware to this day, it's the only Lancaster bomber simulator in the UK and quite possibly the world. You know, someone might have it tucked away in the back garden somewhere, but that we know of that's available to the public. It was the only one. So um, we, we, we got it up and running. And what it was, was some guy, um, I can't remember his name now, but some chap who during World War II, you know, used to watch these things fly over his house and he kind of made it a passion project of his. So he built just a, like a full-size replica of a Lancaster cockpit wow. with, with him and his mates. And there actually was a few original parts in there from real Lancasters. So like oh, the, wow. the, the yoke as well was a proper Lancaster yoke and things like that. Um, so him being a keen carpenter, or you know like joiner himself did all of the, the really fine detailed work like making you know the housing for all the instruments and things like that and uh his mate really into software type stuff actually mm. integrated all the the physical stuff into the electrical signals required to make the simulator work wow and then they wrapped it around with th oh, sorry <laughs> they wrapped it around with three uh tv screens wow. um wired it all up to micro microsoft flight sim uh at the time because that was like the best simulator at the time and um made it work and honestly it's such a good simulator and the amount i i loved it because i learned something as well i, I learned about how these things worked you know because not only was i making the simulator work i'm 
making it into like an experience that we could sell to people. But for me to be the sort of, obviously I'm not a qualified flying instructor, but for me to be the person who ran the simulator and shown people how to fly it when they came and had a go, um, I kind of made, I made it my own project to learn as much as I could about them yeah. myself, you know, um, it's just incredible. The things you learn. Like, I had no idea that Lancaster bombers only had one pilot. Oh, you, well, you'd I think, didn't know that. You, exactly. You, you'd, <laughs> you'd think you'd think that an aircraft of that size had two pilots, um, but they had one pilot in the left-hand seat and the guy who sat to the right of him was the flight engineer who essentially would have kind of acted like a co-pilot anyway, but yeah he didn't they only had one set of controls for the pilot wow and just just things like that because where the engineer sat right next it's sort of in the co-pilot's position um down by his feet was the hole where the bomb aimer climbed down into his area of the uh, aircraft and you know it's just incredible so you, you just learn all of these things and then one of the so we got that all operational um you know we spent a bit of money um you know painting it up making the room around it um we found some amazing bits of memorabilia and just sort of collectible type stuff in the back of the simulator just with cobwebs in the box that they just left there um you know like a chain of like spent bullets and just just things like that um so we found all that and we found like um not original but you know sort of like uh pilots hand notes on how to how the systems operate and things like that so we found all of that then we put it all on the perrier website and it's still on there to this day and i think you'll still see my ugly mug smiling on there um in the pictures but um yeah so we put it on the website you know we offer the experience out to people we we designed sort of three packages i'm not sure if they still run it this way now but we put together three packages um one of them I think package A, we called it, was like a half hour go on the simulator. You just basically fly the thing. And then the challenge was to fly it under the, uh, the oh, what's it called now? The, I think the Humber Bridge or something like that. Um, you know, just, just, just for fun, you know, because a lot of people who come along who do it, you know, they're interested in Lancasters, but they have next to no flying experience at all. So, yeah. you know, they, they have fun flying it. No, we actually had an original set of headsets as well. Oh, wow. So, uh, so we put them on with the oxygen mass. You know, they were all wired up so we could hear each other and everything. So it was a proper immersive experience. Um, so, you know, and then you just have a go flying it. And, the, you know, you test your skills by seeing if you can get it under this bridge at the end sort of thing. It sounds like nearly a dam um, busters run. Well, so, th so then... Uh, this is the way they worked it because we did we worked a lot with like um you know online experience package sellers and things like that but the package c was exactly the same as package a but with another half hour added on the end of it where you then go and fly over all the exact same dams in germany wow um and then yeah and then land back so you know just from a local airfield because flying from <laughs> yorkshire to to the dams in germany would have took hours but um the yeah so you can do that and then package b sort of in the middle they they did it by the amount of time per package but um we offered that as it, it's only available to previous simulator customers or qualified pilots 
And um, what it is, is to fly the Mac Loop in Wales on the Lancaster oh, wow. simulator. Yeah, so... Just so quickly, the, the, for those of my listeners that don't know what the Mac Loop is, it's where uh, the RAF Navy Army Air Corps it is their place where you could be stood on top of a, a valley wall and have them fly under you in fast jet helis, everything. Yeah, yeah. So it's essentially, the, you know, the, the, the well, obviously now a lot of it's fast jet and helicopters and stuff, but the whole point of it is low-level training for the military to essentially learn how to fly under the radar but without hitting mountains so you know it's uh it's what they use but they like i say it's only offered for people who've flown the sim before or qualify pilots because it's really demanding to do it because um it's big the controls are really sluggish and it's fast as well so you really have to be on the ball with flying it so, you know, I'd show people how to fly around the Mac loop and then it's down to them to actually get it around, if you know what I mean. Because yeah. it, it actually took me quite a long time to actually figure out where the Mac loop is, um, you know, how they go around it, where the entry and exit points are and things like that. Because, you know, unless you're really trying to fly it, you know, you, you can't, it's not easy to find out how to do it sort of thing. So, um I watched a lot of videos online, watched a lot of, you know, aviation enthusiast uh, maps that people, you know, you find on Google and things like that, that people overlay the route on maps and stuff. So, um, yeah, after looking up all that, we then offered that package to people. I don't think many people did it mm. just because of, you know, it's only available to those people, not because, you know, we're trying to be picky. It's just because if you were to do it and you had no flying experience, you'd just stuff it into the mountain and you wouldn't yeah. have very much fun, you know? So, um, but yeah, no, that was one thing we did as well. So the, the, the really cool thing was that I was there for long enough that again, the other cool thing about the flying school was that it wasn't just a flying school. They operate vintage uh, biplanes from this flying school at Shoreham. So they operate a tiger moth. They have two stomps. Oh, wow. um, which I didn't, I didn't know what stomps were, but they're essentially a little bit more of a modern zygomorph. Um, and you know, they, they, they had two PA 28s there cause they still do normal PPL training as well. Um, and uh, I can't forget the cub as well. They had like an old uh, vintage sort of Piper cub there as well. Um, so I'd be around them a lot of the time. I, I naturally did some office functions. So, when staff were ill or anything, you know, I'd be sorting out bookings, processing, you know, the, sort of the operations side of things. Um, and then, you know, after the boss got to know me for a while and, you know, we made the simulator a thing. When I wasn't um, doing simulator experiences, I was uh, ground crewing all the, all the vintage aircraft they had. And I was actually taught how to prop swing on all the aircraft. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I'm going to put it on my Instagram uh, sometime soon because I came across an old video of me prop swinging a tiger moth. And, you know, quite naturally, they don't just let anyone do it. You really have to know what you're doing because yeah. I think, I don't know, across the world, there's at least one case a year of people having their hand chopped off because, you know, the, at the moment it fires, it goes almost instantly to, you know, it's idle speed. Yeah, you know so it's it's and then you've got that in your face and obviously because it's a prop it's sucking air into it so you've kind of got to move away from it as you flick it around 
and you know people who do it for the first time almost run away from it as you flick it around you know but you again i just got to understand what a tiger moth is and how it works and you actually get to know the engine by hand swinging it because there was times when we'd swing it um you just knew it wasn't going to fire, but you yeah. just knew it. Like for some really weird, it was live, it was ready to go, but you just knew it wouldn't fire. And that's just by spending time out front, you know, their prop swinging it. And then, then you just knew that this time it was going to fire. And then when you did it, it fired. It's just really weird. But no, that was awesome because I spent most of my summer and almost full time as well, actually, at this flying school doing this stuff. And then the only reason I left was because I was leaving university and coming up to start rotary training. Wow. And did you, going back just to the um, to the Lancaster sim, did you have anyone who'd actually flown Lancasters to, to give feedback of how really... Oh, yeah. No, this is what I forgot to mention to you. So we never had any pilots uh, come and visit, but we had this one chap um, who, who was an ex-Lancaster bomb aimer. Wow. Wow. Um, and again, you know, he was quite old. Uh, <laughs> obviously, that sounds bad, but I mean, so, you know, he was, um, you know, he was quite old. So there's not a lot of them around, you know, and it, obviously, you know, a lot went on in the war. It wasn't just Lancasters. So to have, you know, original Lancaster crew come and visit our simulator was absolutely fantastic. Mm. And um, so he came, he sat in the cockpit, he had a, you know, he had a go at flying it and stuff. And he was genuinely impressed and blown away by how realistic, it, well, not fully realistic, but, you know, just the sort of layout of the cockpit. It was, you know, it's a one-to-one -one scale. It had all the original uh, sort of, you know, the, the positions of all the switches and gauges and stuff. The gauges were digital, you know, because they had like a screen behind them to project the displays on. But um no, he was really impressed by it. And then uh, we also had a guy locally whose father was the Lancaster pilot. Wow. And he actually brought along with him um, original pictures of his dad, you know, like squadron pictures. So they're all sat in front of the aircraft and stuff. And he donated all of these pictures and memorabilia to us um, for the simulator. And I think, obviously, I've not been there for about a year now, but I presume they're still all up on the wall because he was a local guy as well in Durham. So, you know, it's a simulator in Durham, so we wanted to sort of commemorate a guy who flew them locally, you know, so that's they, cool. were, all, they were all up on the wall. That's very, very cool. That's Wow. To, to even get something like that in World War Two guys, because I know, I think someone's advertising a Spitfire sim um but like... uh, i actually <laughs> something that blew me away recently was um again because it's sort of locked down at the moment i you know i'm trying to get back fit again but i absolutely i don't know anyone who loves it but i absolutely hate running I'm the same, so, yeah. Uh, yeah so i got my bike working recently and obviously the thing with a bike means you can go a lot further than you can whilst you're running so um because of lockdown and because of COVID and things like that, I've not actually been into Leicester city centre that often. So the last few days I've been going on bike rides and I've just been riding around the streets, you know, getting to know the layout and things like that. Um, and again, the, the only thing, you know, doing this meant I actually came across a shop front and what caught my eye was I seen like a mannequin dressed in full like RAF uniform. Right. And so I, I just rode up to the shop front. Just, I, was, I thought it was some sort of like, promotional gimmick or something but then i read the shop sign and it said leicester simulators or something 
All right. And it looks like they've got car racing simulators in there, but they've also got a Spitfire simulator in there as well. Oh, wow. Um, so again, you know, I think that'd be a good weekend job for me. But um, oh, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm just, well, with Air Cadets and full-time training and everything, I, I don't think I could justify it. But, you know, again, I, I had no idea they existed until I rode past their shop front. So there, there is a good few Spitfire simulators around the country because obviously it's the spitfire but yeah um yeah as far as we're aware that was the only lancaster simulator in the country and as far as i'm aware it's still available so you can go to the perrier website and have a look and see what you fancy basically brilliant i might have to cast an eye at that just just to see we see what the story is because that, that would be a cool day out oh what, what you know why not and i'm definitely going back at some point you know i made some friends there you know um you know, that I made a few friends whilst I was working there, similar age to me as well. So, and they still work there as well. So I definitely said, I'm going to go back. You know, I'm, I've, I've got to land back at Shuram Airfield in the helicopter, you know, because it, it's kind of like full circle sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And, but no, no, I'll, I'll go back at some point. And, I, you know, I just I just loved it there. You know, one of the best bits was um, during, at the height of summer, you know, out on the grass, sunbathing, you know, you know, whilst the aircraft are out flying, you know, with nothing to do. And then you'd have Apaches from the Army Air Corps just taxiing past you and just, just, just really weird things like that. And again, just the best summer job I've ever had. So. Yeah, let's go back to like Michael, I think, is saying like sitting there sunbathing out on the grass. I remember one evening that really stuck with me was... I think it was about July or August and it was a time where it was hitting 35 degrees every day and it was it was hot and I went, I went for a spin to see for it. it was seven o'clock in the evening it was 30 degrees in the ground it got a little bit cooler at 1500 feet it was only 29 um, and then I remember we, we'd finished flying one of the lads was, te was testing out a, a jabberoo and we were having a bit of crack and then we came into land watching the sunset he came into land watching the sunset and we all just kind of sat there having, having a, a Fanta and a Coke and just like sat in, in the heat I'm all just talking some really really good stuff and and you know just yeah. what mates do you know it just hits you doesn't it it's like you you don't realize whilst you're doing it like you know you're just chatting to your mates having you know, like you say having a kind of coke planes landing next to you and then it just hits you it's like you know th this is why you fly isn't it you're just doing things like this and again it, it brings it back to that whole micro light world you know the community aspects of it because you have meetups and things like that um but like I say, when it comes to commercial aviation, as fun and as, as amazing as it is a, as a career, you know, you can't be, you know, spending time during the summer having a barbecue at the airfield, you know, with planes landing all around you whilst you, you know, you're chatting aviation to your mates, you know, and just talking about those near misses with private jets you've had. And, you know, it's just <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's incredible. And I'll definitely get back to doing it at some point soon brilliant it'd be, it'd be good to see you back so if anyone out there is aged between 15 and the age of 20 and does uh, have an interest in microlights and fancies doing it get yourself over to the british microlight aircraft association's website and get that bursary filled in and um hopefully myself and tom will uh, see you in the sky very very soon tom it's been it. an absolute yeah. pleasure having you on today um have you, have you got anything else you want to say about both the bursary no no well so you know the bursary just go for it you've got absolutely nothing to lose by signing up for it at all um you know because at most you know you just won't be successful but it doesn't take you much to fill in the form and see where it goes and i genuinely didn't think i was going to get accepted for it at all you know and then the email came through and i was overjoyed when it came through um 
so you know do it and it's it's open to everyone you know so it's open to girls as well you know it's you know as as male dominated as aviation is you know if you know i think if you've got that genuine passion for aviation you know you should go for it and follow it because um you know you should follow your dreams and then if you're essentially doing a job in the future that you love doing you'll never work a day of your life so that's what i've always been following my life so you know and i'm hopefully making it a reality now so yeah no honestly it's been incredible the first ever podcast as well i'm, hey, I'm i feel I, proud I feel, of that. <laughs> I feel pleasured to be asked onto a podcast so no of course it's brilliant and you know definitely go check out all of uh, mikey's <laughs> social media as well so and like we said, if you want to check out Tom's stuff, it's the Micropilot on, on YouTube and follow also Tom on uh, on Instagram. He's Like you said, he's got some really, really cool stuff on there. And I quite enjoy sitting down and have, having a look at your stuff, Tom. So uh, th thank you. Thanks a million for coming out. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much.